Hello, everybody, and welcome to Uncork the Sun with the Vinstitute Wine School. I am your host, Moss Sherkogel, but you can call me Moss Sherkogel, your host. A little over a month ago, I started a mini-series within this podcast because I had too much to talk about, which, quite frankly, is always an issue, but it's not always actionable. But in episode four, I wanted to talk about a year in the vineyard, the life cycle of a crop of grapevines, and I discovered that there was way too much for me to discuss in just one episode. So in episode four, I gave you the overview. In episode five, I honed in on what it's like to plant grapevines. And then for episode six, when we thought we'd be wrapping up the trilogy, I instead threw you a curveball, recorded some audio from the back of my car next to a highway, and fell back on an interview with the delightful John Pullen to do all the heavy lifting. You were expecting Return of the Jedi. I gave you a holiday special. But here we are, episode seven, time to wrap up loose ends. We have talked about planting grapes, we have talked about cultivating and maintaining grapes, and now it is time for today's topic, harvesting grapes. When we left off in episode four, we were talking about nurturing the grapevines through till the end of the summer, and then finally getting to that critical season that every vineyard plans its entire year around, and that is harvest time. Classically, and still in a lot of old world wine regions, there will be harvest festivals based around this time. There will be grand celebrations, bacchanalias, because there's something very joyous about finally reaping the benefits of a year of labor in farming. But it's also a time when we need a lot of help. There's a lot of work to be done, and these harvest festivals would often involve labor bringing in people from the surrounding countryside to celebrate the harvest of the grapes, but also to pick the stupid things. In New World wine regions, we we tend to celebrate it as well in our own ways. In the town of Oliver, we have the Festival of the Grape, which is a long-standing tradition for us, and involves events like a ceremonial grape stomp competition where people come from all over the world to try to squeeze as much juice with their bare feet as possible. The difference between our festival and these classical harvest festivals, though, is that the people who are participating are not then waking up at four in the morning to go harvest fruit the next day, which is probably why it's so popular. The point I am trying to make is that harvest time is very exciting, but it's also crunch time. It's the most serious and critical time in the vineyard, because all the work that you poured in for nine or ten months up till this point can quite honestly be undone if you're not careful, if you don't act quick enough, or just through sheer act of God if environmental conditions turn against you. And I guess that's why it warrants an entire episode just upon the single topic. Today I'm going to break down the harvest cycle into three phases. Testing, picking, and processing. And at the risk of being predictable, we will start at the beginning with testing. As August rolls on, you, the vineyard operator in this scenario, are going to be watching your grapes very carefully. You're going to be looking for physiological changes, looking for the green stems to start turning brown. You're going to be picking grapes, you're going to be splitting them and seeing if the green seeds inside are losing that green color, are turning brown as well. And for a lot of wines, you're not really going to see the changes you want in August. You're going to have to wait until September. But there are a few early ripening grapes, like Chardonnay, where you could feasibly be ready to pick by the end of the month of August. 
For most grape varietals, though, your whites you're picking sometime in September, and your reds you're picking sometime in October. But everything's a little variable. You're not just watching for these physical changes, though, you're also starting to test your grapes. The first things that you're testing for are pH and TA. TA is a term that we use to describe total acidity, or titratable acidity, depending on how nerdy you are. You can't just call it acid as a generalization, because there's three different types of acid that interplay in a wine. There's malic acid, citric acid, and then later in the winemaking process you can develop lactic acid as well. And so total acidity is a catch-all for all the acids that are floating around inside there. pH is another figure that we look at here, because pH is kind of a buffer against acid. Both of these figures, uh, pH and TA, will change throughout the year, and you generally want to be watching the levels at this point to make sure you have enough acid for your wine to be comfortable, but not such a high level of acid that your wine um, is overly acidic. A lot of this information you can get through physical testing. You can get numbers and stats. But the second category that you're testing for, in addition to pH and TA, is actually just the taste itself. This isn't just flavor that you're looking for, although obviously you want your grapes to have a pleasant flavor. This is also where you really appreciate the balance between things like acidity and pH. The numbers can't always convey the full story, and so you really do need to just put a grape in your mouth and chew it up. But another reason why tasting the grapes is so important is because it can teach you about consistency. Anybody who has grown fruit of any kind will tell you that it doesn't all ripen at exactly the same time. With grapes, you're going to have lighter berries and darker berries, riper fruit and less ripe fruit. Not just within the same block of plants, but sometimes on the same plant itself, you'll have multiple clusters that are ready at slightly different times. But we can't always afford to do multiple passes. Swing through, pick some grapes, come back again in a week, pick some more. Ideally, you want to pick everything in one fell swoop. Well, when you try those really dark berries, and then you try those really light berries, if they're starting to taste pretty similar, then you know you've hit a level of consistency that will permit you to harvest. If they're still tasting too different, well, then you're not ready. The third category that you're testing for is debatably the most important, and it is sweetness. And how do you measure sweetness? You use a word that I'm sure most people who affiliate themselves with wine have heard, but maybe not everybody understands, and it is the word bricks. B-R-I-X. Bricks. It's a hot term. People love to use it. You see restaurants called it. You see lines of chocolate called it. You see all these peripherals that use this term because it's kind of a fun term. It's got an X in there. That's exciting. But what is it? Well, bricks is a measurement system. It's a scale that tells you how much soluble sugar is in your juice. And it's not just used by grape farmers. Every type of fruit farmer that needs to measure sugar levels will use bricks as a rating system. You'll see it used by honey producers. You'll see it used by maple syrup producers. It's just a handy universal scale to tell you how sweet something is. Now, I should point out, just for the sake of accuracy, that it actually doesn't just measure sugar. It measures dissolved solids. And there are more solid things in grape juice than just sugar. There are soluble acids in there too. So your bricks rating is going to be a measurement of mostly dissolved sugar, but a little bit of dissolved acid, and maybe a little bit of dissolved other things too. But it's enough sugar that we can kind of hand wave the other stuff. I just had to say that so that no honeymongers get angry at me. Now how do you test for bricks? Well, there's actually a very cool little device that you can use. It's called a refractometer, and it looks like a little scope. They're cheap, they're readily available, 
They're pretty durable, so you can just shove one in your pocket, wander out into the field, and test your sugars right there. No lab required. What you do is you take some grapes, you smush them up, and you rub the juice on the lens of the refractometer. You flip down a little glass panel to pin it in there. You hold it up and you point it at the sun. You peer through, singeing your retina, and seeing how the light passes through this lens and strikes a little crystal. There's a written scale inside that measures the curvature of the light. You know, the first thing you do before you go into the vineyard is you calibrate it by putting a little bit of water on the lens. And you see what the measurement is for that. And then when you rub the grape juice on, this little meter kind of ticks away as the light bends. And it just gives you a number. Boom, simple as that. You have your bricks number. No math needed. You don't need one of those little whirly-gig lab things where they spin the test tubes around so that you know on a TV show that they're doing science. No, it's that simple. And the numbers that you're looking for to know that your fruit is ripe, well, of course, they vary by every grape. But let's say we're talking Merlot. It's the most planted grape in British Columbia, most common grape in the South Okanagan between Oliver and Soyuz. So it's a good example. If you're harvesting Merlot, you want to see mid to high 20s. You're looking at kind of a minimum 24.5 bricks up to uh, our hottest seasons have given us kind of around maybe 28 that's just in the area that I work in. I'm, I'm sure that there are some areas in Oliver and Asoyuz where they can get hotter than that. But if you can get between 25 and 27, you're pretty comfy. There is actually some math that you can do here. I know I kind of implied that there wouldn't be math, but uh, trust me, this one is fun. You can actually take your bricks number. Let's say it's the minimum, 24.5. If you multiply that number by 0.57. That's kind of the magic number there. That'll roughly predict what your alcohol levels are going to be after you ferment it dry. So 24.5 bricks, if you ferment away all the sugar for a dry wine, will leave you with about 13.96% alcohol. Call it 14% alcohol. And if you're up in the high range 27 bricks, let's say, well, 27 times 0.57, would give you 15.4% alcohol. So a vineyard operator can guess just by using this tiny little scope, this little refractometer, which does nothing but look at how light bends around a smear of pulp, how alcoholic the finished wine could be. Very cool, eh? With all of the work that you have to do in vineyard maintenance up to this point, the lovely thing is that if you did August correct, September is just sample and taste, sample and taste, sample and taste. And then when finally the stars are all aligned, your acid's under control, you're tasting consistency between your bunches, and your bricks level is nice and sweet, then it's time for phase two, which is, of course, picking the grapes. Picking grapes is hard. I pick grapes like, I don't know, maybe only twice. And uh, yeah, it's hard. It's a lot of work. Gotta bend over a lot. If it's hot, then you get hot. If it's wet, then you get wet. And like I said before, you don't want to just pick some grapes. You want to pick all the grapes. All the grapes in a certain block. Maybe that's not your entire vineyard, but uh, it's still more than one person can do. So when we talk about picking grapes, really the most important thing to discuss is who picks the grapes. For farmers of all different crops in the Okanagan and around British Columbia, most harvest labor comes in a couple different forms. 
There are temporary foreign workers that often come in from Mexico or India. But in order to hire a temporary foreign worker onto your farm, you need to meet certain requirements. The most critical of which is that you need to be able to provide them with accommodation. Now, a lot of small farms just don't have accommodation to offer, which kind of locks them out of the idea of bringing in temporary foreign workers. So for a lot of farms and vineyards, uh, most farms and vineyards, the labor that you get for your harvest are the good old-fashioned 22-year-old French Canadians. Now, I shouldn't generalize too much. Uh, Some of them are 21, and they're not all necessarily French or from Quebec, although it often does seem that way. In fact, what happens is typically young people from across Canada will come out to the Okanagan to just pick fruit for a season. Farmers that I've talked to say that it's typically about a 50-50 split between veteran pickers who have done this for five or six years in a row and brand new pickers who are taking a bit of a gap year from university or even high school who come out here for the summer or for longer if they can and they just harvest fruit after fruit after fruit. You can start at the end of May with cherries, move on to peaches, then you pick apples, and grapes are the last thing that you harvest, picking those sometimes right into November, and then you pack your bags and you head home. This kind of itinerant farm labor is uh, commonplace, and the entire wine industry entirely depends on it. In the year 2020 here, with COVID-19 raging all around us, there have been many stories of farmers deliberately curtailing the amount of crop that they can grow within this season, Because without enough hands to pick, the effort is wasted. With travel across the country not prohibited, but discouraged, certainly there's going to be a lot less labor coming out west. And if a farm can only get 40% of the pickers that they normally would, then a lot of people are only bothering to grow 40% of the crops. So this is going to be a really fascinating year to look back on from the future, to see how different industries dealt with these labor shortages. Even in the finest of years, it is a genuine issue to try to find accommodation for all these temporary workers. The towns of Oliver and Asoyuz don't have an abundance of low-income affordable housing, and there aren't many options in the way of picker camps either. A recent article in Global News suggested that something in the range of 1,500 domestic farm workers would be traveling across the country to BC, all of them needing a place to sleep, to eat, to clean. And quite frankly, not all of them are going to receive that. While working in orchards for cherries, peaches, apples, a lot of pickers just bring tents, sleeping bags, tarps, and they're allowed to just sleep right out there in the field. But vineyards don't always make for comfortable campgrounds. And what's more, the grape harvest season starts to draw into some pretty chilly times. Sleeping outside under the stars is nice enough in July when you're harvesting peaches, but if it's past Thanksgiving and you're sleeping outside in a vineyard, something else entirely right. So the pickers who are fortunate enough to have vehicles will often sleep in them. The few wineries that are fortunate enough to have appropriate accommodations will allow the pickers to stay there. And I've seen on multiple occasions uh, vineyard managers who let pickers stay in their own homes. Because for some farmers, uh, having that assured labor is worth having to deal with um, a couple of extra roommates for a month. But you might ask then, if picking grapes is hard work, and if there's no assurance that you'll have a place to sleep or even a flushing toilet anywhere near you. Why would these people want to come out here and pick fruit in the first place? I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. It can be an adventure, it can be social, change of pace, life experience. But the other thing, the big thing, is that if you're good at picking fruit, you can make good money on it. And that's why you have these veteran pickers that come back for half a decade. So let me explain the harvest process. 
And let's start by saying that we're talking hand harvesting. Most vineyards in British Columbia are under 40 acres. And for smaller vineyards, hand harvesting makes a lot of sense. If you have a large capacity vineyard, then you might look into machine harvesting, which is basically a great big tractor that rolls between your vines, shakes all the fruit off of them, and catches the grapes, the birds, the bugs, everything that's in there, snatches up it all. It can be a bit rough on the grapes, and it can be pretty indiscriminate. Although if you're willing to shell out big bucks, you can get some very cool technology like optical grape sorters, where little robot sensors will actually identify good grapes compared to bad grapes, and boop, 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 collect only the good ones and leave the bad ones behind. But for most of us, our optical grape sorting machines are called eyeballs. When we're planning to harvest our grapes, the first thing we do is we watch the weather. You only want to pick in clean, dry conditions. If you harvest wet grapes and let them sit inside a bin, uh, they're much more likely to rot or get oxidative juice. And if you let them sit in hot conditions, you can kind of stew the grapes before you even start working with them. So you wait for a dry spell, no rain, ideally no dew, and maybe a little cooler is good. And then you bring in your pickers. When it's prime time harvest season, you can just set out the tools by the end of the road. You can start getting set up for the day and pickers will just show up. It's really nice to have a consistent team who comes back time after time, people that you know, people that you trust, but sometimes you just need those grapes off those vines. And whoever shows up, boom, that's your labor for the day. Grape pickers will often work in pairs. They'll go it into the rows. You'll take a big square white bin. It holds a half ton of fruit. You'll plant it in the middle of the row. One picker starts at one side, the other starts at the other side. They work their way towards the middle. They meet at the bin, move on to the next row. The vineyard operator is usually driving in and out with the tractor, picking up bins when they get filled, bringing in empty bins when they're needed, and just generally vineyard operating. Once your bins are full, the first thing you do is you weigh them, so that you know how much was picked, so that you can pay people. In most cases, pickers get paid by weight, which means the, it's the efficiency of their own work that makes them money. If they're slow picking, well, they get paid less by the hour overall. But if they're fast and they do good quality work, well, if you're working with a partner, uh, you can usually fill a half-ton bin in maybe, call it, 40 minutes. This is again using Merlot as a reference point. Let's say you're cropping down taking three tons per acre. You fill a half-ton bin 40 minutes. And for one bin, the farmer maybe pays $70 to the team. That's split two ways. So 35 bucks for 40 minutes of work. It means that if you're good and you're working hard, you can make $50 an hour. You get professional highball pickers that uh, can be pretty demanding with their work, actually. They don't like interruptions, they don't like being stopped, because time is money. And so sometimes if you want really good pickers to work on kind of a challenging field that's going to be slower going, sometimes you have to offer them bonuses or a higher wage. But again, a good pair of pickers can harvest maybe five tons of fruit, ten bins in a day. It's a lot of work, but that's also $700 split two ways. And if you're bouncing from vineyard to vineyard to vineyard, working every day, you can make a lot of money in the season, as long as you're willing to sleep in a van. Alright, back to the grand topic of harvest. We've tested our grapes, they're ready to go, we've brought in our pickers, we've harvested the fruit. Well, what do we do when the production team actually gets the grapes in their hands? Well, when those big half-ton bins come in, like I said, the first thing you do is you weigh them so that you know how much to pay people. The second thing you do is usually put a little bit of a sulfur solution into your bins. You dissolve a little bit of sulfur in liquid, you pour that over top, 
And the purpose there is to uh, both avoid oxidization, that keeps the grapes from oxidizing while they're sitting there in the bins. Because you have to imagine these bins come in, they get set down on the crush pad, and sometimes they stay there overnight. If you have a huge volume of fruit to work with, then the harvest team can't necessarily process them all as they're coming in. The bins are going to sit, maybe just for a couple of hours, maybe for a day. And you know what happens when you have a single cluster of grapes sitting out on your countertop, right? By the end of the day, fruit flies everywhere, grapes going squishy and bad. Now imagine half a ton of grapes sitting on your kitchen counter. That's why we put on the sulfur solution to avoid oxidization, deterioration, and it also helps kill some of the microorganisms that might be living in those grapes so that we can have, think of it as a clean start when we add in our yeast. We don't want foreign agents messing with our winemaking process, unless we are making natural wine, in which case we kind of want the natural wild organisms to do their thing. Even in that situation, you might still use a little bit of sulfur, just not as much. Then when you're finally ready to get to your bin of fruit, when it's on its way to the press, you add in an enzyme. There's lots of different enzymes in the world that do different things. This enzyme that we use specifically breaks down pectin. It makes us so that when we press the fruit, the juice just comes right out. It doesn't stick. It doesn't cling. The upshot is that in winemaking, if you don't use enzyme, you get cloudy juice. But if you use the enzyme, you get pretty clean juice. And it just makes it a lot easier for us to work with when making the wine. These are all the tiny little things that people don't necessarily realize about the winemaking process that I think are very interesting. So you put in your enzyme to start loosening things up. You bring your forklift over, pick up the bin, and empty it into a hopper, where all the grapes are then wheeled on a conveyor belt past one or two people who are sorting out fruit. This is when you find out how good your pickers really were, because this is when the, you know, usually the assistant winemakers are picking out any of the nasty clusters of grapes. Things that have mildew, things that have rot. They're also picking out leaves and sticks. You just want the cleanest fruit to continue on the conveyor belt and drop down into your press. A lot of people use bladder presses that have kind of an inflatable, well, bladder that puffs up and squeezes the juice free from the grapes. Bladder presses are really efficient. They start off with a gentle push and then they rotate around and then they do a slightly firmer push, rotate around, slightly firmer again, and they keep on pushing a little bit harder until you've basically wrung all the juice out of your grape skins without ever smashing them, cracking seeds, doing anything that would release bitter or astringent tones into your juice. And then once you have the juice pressed, it goes into a tank. And quite frankly, at that point, it isn't the vineyard's issue anymore. At that point, it's winemaking. And that means that as the vineyard manager, all you have to do is turn and walk back out into your empty field, Maybe over the next few days or weeks, you'll uh, water in, which is a term that we use to describe doing a really long watering cycle to prep the roots for winter. Really lets everything soak in. Loose, dry soil is at risk of coming to frost damage, so you saturate those vines real good. Well, then, then you wait for December or January to start doing pre-pruning. And at that point, you just cycle back around and listen to episode four of this podcast again. Thank you everybody for listening to Uncork the Sun today with me as we wrapped up our mini-series on the annual cycle of a vineyard. Even though I am no longer recording this podcast from beautiful Oliver Asoyus wine country, 
It fills my heart with 45 degrees Celsius summer warmth to talk about the area like this. If you want to know more about the wineries of Oliver Asoyuz wine country, the place to visit is www.oliverasoyuz.com. Thank you as always to everybody who tuned into our virtual Vinstitute broadcast on July 7th. Things were a little bit different. I had to pre-record the video, and instead of doing it live, we just did a watch party that worked terribly. So if you tried to watch it and it didn't really manage to pan out, know that the video is available to watch on the Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country Facebook page. And it is definitely worth a watch. I talked about Gamay Noir, and because I was recording the video in a tool shed, I indulged in a little bit of atmospheric prop comedy. So if that sounds real fun to you, uh, go check out that video on the Facebook page. The next live stream will actually be a live stream, and that'll be held Tuesday, July 21st at 7 o'clock p.m. on the Oliver Soyuz Wine Country Facebook page, where we will be talking about aromatic white wines, some of my favorites. If you want to post about this show or the live tastings, use hashtag UncorkTheSun. This podcast is a collaboration between Oliver Soyuz Wine Country and the Vinstitute Wine School. We release it on Friday every second week. If you have any questions about the podcast, about wine, winemaking, feel free to please email me at moss at vinstitute.ca. The music for this episode was provided by Olav. To hear more of his work, visit olav.bandcamp.com. The host has been me, Moss Shurkogel, and I still do not have a home. So if you are selling your house in the Saanich Peninsula just north of Victoria, please let me know. So whether you, like me, are experiencing the beauty of Oliver Soyuz wine country from the comfort of your parents' toolshed in Qualicum Beach, or whether you're planning a trip there for the future, We cannot wait to raise a glass with you and uncork the sun together.